Hi, everybody. All right, I guess this is a thing that we're doing now. So, my name is Kristalina May. I am a historian of early modern Europe, and um, I'm a currently a graduate student at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I am also a practicing pagan. So to give you a little rundown of what this show is going to be, um, I am the witchy historian. So I am going to do one episode about history of, you know, witchcraft and the laws against it and all of that type of stuff and witchcraft trials and those types of things and religious law and then I'm also going to do other episodes between those about modern witchcraft my practice the practice of my friends um, what that actually looks like and I'm going to talk about some of the historical um, traditions that are what we base our practices in. So, yeah, that, that's me. That's my story, and that's why I'm here. I'm so excited to be starting this journey. Welcome to the first episode. And today, we're going to go all the way back to... 1258 common era CE and talk about the Roman Catholic Church and Pope Alexander the fourth the canon to stop the persecution of witches so during this time this is in the late medieval period um, belief in witches and sorcery and all of these types of things magic this goes back to before the beginning of time, right? Um, before what we now call the written word, before cave paintings, all of this stuff, this is something that has been long believed by many different cultures from all around the world. And there's different words for witches and sorcery, but the concept has always been there. From the founding of Christianity in, you know, the mid 50th, 50 year, 50, about 50 CE. Um, so this is the mid first century through the mid 400s. So this is the very, very beginning of the establishment of the early church. Early Christians were explicitly opposed to the persecution and execution of witches and witchcraft because they believed that persecuting witches and um, the, the action of witchcraft and persecuting sorcery was an admission that it was true. And they believed that that flew in the face of what Jesus taught. So in 643, the Code of Lombard states that, quote, a, for, uh, a foreign, I have to read my notes here, a foreign serving maid or female servant should not be killed as a witch 
for it is not possible nor ought to be believed by Christian minds. So they are very staunchly against the idea that witchcraft and paganism is even existing at this point. Witchcraft and sorcery was banned by the church, but it was charged as heresy and not as witchery or witchcraft. And the punishments were really mild. Um, as people that were doing this, they were usually considered innocent and they were being misled by the devil. So the punishments for this were usually pilgrimage um, or maybe a whipping for repeated offenses. Um, 30 lashes was fairly common. If this was something that somebody had been doing over and over and over for years, one of the most severe punishments that's on record up to this point is 100 lashes, but even that was considered very, very severe by these standards. So Emperor Constantine had actually argued for the execution of heretics in the 320s, but since the church was in the charge of religious crimes. Uh, you know, they were the ones that were persecuting religious crimes. So the emperor didn't have any say over how heretics were treated. So the pope had the final say on how heresy was tried and punished. So in 1258, Pope Alexander IV, he just comes to uh, the papacy and he declares a canon and he says that any accusations of witchcraft are not to be investigated by the church. There um, are isolated incidents during this time within Christendom of secular governments that are harshly punishing alleged heretics, but the church in general was mostly against this until the late 1300s, so almost 100 years later. The church did sanction anti-witch rhetoric, um, but that didn't start until the late 1400s. So this is when the self-appointed inquisitor Heinrich Kramer published the Malleus Maleficarum, or the Hammer Against the Witches, um, and I will discuss this in detail in a later episode, uh, but I really wanted to talk about this popple bull, or this canon, that Pope Alexander IV published. It's one of the first writings that we have from the church about witches. So what was really going on that kind of inspired this, right? So in September, on September 27th, 1258, Joachim of Fior, um, he has some ideas um, adopted by the Fraticellis. Um, This is kind of the beginning of the end of the church hierarchy. They're really starting to fight back against this idea that the Pope is the end-all be-all. And... Um, this actually, these ideas become part of the Franciscan order of monks and lends to the credibility of some of the theological ideas that come out in the late 1400s that lead to the Reformation era. So the church at this time didn't deny the existence of magic, but they made it a civil issue underneath um, this popple bull, right? So Pope Alexander IV, 
he's making it look like we shouldn't be charging these things because we don't want to admit that witchcraft is a thing. Um, and he's really trying to separate the idea of witchcraft and sorcery from what heresy is. But he puts this idea of witchcraft back in the hands of the civil authorities. So he's kind of washing his hands of the whole thing. So he kind of looks like the good guy for a minute. But in reality, he's just kind of trying to take any kind of culpability off of himself. So the church, uh, he urges the church uh, authorities to only investigate charges of heresy and any charges specifically of witchcraft and sorcery are to be sent to the civil courts. So the church views, the Catholic church at this time is viewing the use of magic as superstitious or silly attempts at kind of controlling circumstances beyond human control instead of being something that's inherently heretical, right? So they're really latching on to this idea that people are not inherently evil. They are not inherently, you know, doing things to dismantle the church. They're just being led astray because there's all of these other things that are going on and they're just trying to gain some semblance of control back. That's not something that we're supposed to be messing with. So in 1255, three years before he issues this bull, um, this had confirmed Innocent IV's grant of Sicily to Henry III of England, um, his son Edmund, right? So the Pope at the time, in, 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 uh, Innocent IV, excuse my mush mouth, um, he had granted Sicily to an English prince, Edmund. But by 1261, Henry III's failure to gather the necessary taxes to pay off the annual fees to the church for this had resulted in the Second Baron's War and a papal bull that absolved Henry from the oaths taken in the provisions of Oxford. So right after Alexander IV issues this bull stating we're not supposed to be issuing, don't stop trying witches. We're not persecuting witches because they're not real. Send them to the civil authorities. He then excuses Henry III's massive amount of debt to the church in these provisions of Oxford. This is where the government structure of England as we know it now really begins. So this is where 15 barons are appointed to advise and kind of control the king and to supervise his ministers. This is how they control the money, where it's being spent, how it's coming in, all of this stuff. These are his advisors. This is his cabinet. Henry III refuses to comply with this, which is what sparks the war. So these provisions were highly impactful on how English common law and then subsequently American common law was developed. There were restrictions of royal jurisdiction and they were obligated 
to um, this actually obligated the monarchy to defend and provide security for the subjects of England. It also explicitly placed the king as subject to common law, uh, but he could only be tried by his own granted permission and a petition of rights, which could only be brought by an individual and not on behalf of the subjects as a whole. So there's this really interesting dynamic where the king has this kind of absolute authority that even though he's subject to the law, he cannot be tried under it unless an individual brings a charge against him. And that individual has to have a lot of backing um, in order to be able to have the resources to do this, right? So there is no other clear definition of the king's role or that of these 15 advisors in, in this um, provision, right? In the provisions of Oxford. When Alex IV, Alexander IV, um, the Pope, posts this bull absolving Henry III of his obligations, the Second Baron's War starts. Henry is defeated at Lewes in 1264, and Simon de Montfort was, he became the real ruler, quote unquote, for the next 12 months. So the king was never actually dethroned, but Simon de Montfort, who is French, by the way, he steps in and he is acting ruler with the king as kind of just a figurehead. So the rebels never removed Henry as king. They instead create the king's council of three electors to appoint nine men who were to advise and guide the king. So they replaced the 15 barons with nine men. And the electors in this council could change the members of the council at their discretion, but the electors could not be removed without a vote by parliament. So in 1266, the king is fully reinstated, uh, de Montfort is removed and the provisions are annulled once and for all. They no longer matter for anything. However, the electors, the king's council, and the accompanying government reforms were confirmed in the statute of Marlborough. Um, some would say Mulberry. We in America say Mar Marlborough, but in in England, they say Marlborough. So, who is Alex IV? Alexander IV, the Pope. He was determined to rejoin the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church together. So, this is why he's kind of making these moves and trying to take a Roman Catholic king, which would have been Henry III at the time, and join him with part of Sicily in Italy, which even though Italy was under the Roman Catholic Church, parts of it belonged to the Eastern Orthodox Kingdom, and Sicily was part of that. And so the Pope signs off 
on things like the French Inquisition and other actions that are really violent in order to do the in order to do this, in order to root out the Eastern Orthodox um, members. So this is where the right the right officials of the church, right? The, the, he gives, he grants them this right to seek out and punish heretics becomes, it becomes an openly sanctioned behavior in the church. But at the end of his life, he, um, he remained Pope until he died. Alexander IV issues another bull on his deathbed in his final days. This sanctions the church authorities to investigate and persecute accusations of magic and sorcery, which overturns his own earlier order. So from this point forward, witch trials really escalated to unprecedented heights, and they peaked in the late 15 and early 1600s under, um, especially in England, under Elizabeth I and James I. Um, so this gives a little bit of background about the church's stance on witchcraft, what they thought it was, they thought it was just heresy, why they didn't really want to prosecute it, um, and how this impacted one of the government structures of a nation that was one of the forerunners in the witchcraft trials, which would have been England. So this really sets up a whole slew of new things that come forward from the church about what witches look like, what they do, how they act. And it starts off kind of at the grassroots level where it's just whisperings in the neighborhood. I'm going to take a quick sip of my coffee here. Mm -hmm. But members of the church are starting to have these discussions about, hey, what does a witch look like? There's healing women in the neighborhood. There are these ideas now that are starting to come forward that medicine should only be practiced by men who have been educated. So a lot of these medicine women who have lived in neighborhoods and have been practicing herbal medicine or folk medicine for a really long time are all of a sudden kind of getting some side eye. And people are starting to ask questions about what their intentions are. This is also the time where we are shifting away from the medieval period into the early modern age. There's a lot of big sociocultural changes happening. There's big government changes happening. There's some new industrial technology that's starting to be developed. There's new lands being discovered. There's all kinds of crazy stuff that goes on between 1200 and 1500. And um, this really brings forward a lot of questions about who God is, what his intentions are, 
um, what it looks like to be a Christian. And previously, Christendom had been fairly united. Everybody practiced in unique and personal ways, but the basics were pretty much the same across all of these nations. And all of a sudden, there's these very unique and interesting ideas that start to come forward about what the church should be teaching, how people should be accessing this information, and what they should be allowed to do with it. And so now you have people who are no longer just discussing things in their home. They're sharing these ideas with their neighbors. And this sparks what we know as the Reformation. It often, get, often gets attributed to Martin Luther, um, the monk who had the 95 theses that he nailed to the door. Um, but this was happening before Luther came along. These ideas had been planted a hundred years before he was even born. And we'll talk more about that over the coming months. Uh, to let everybody know what my plan is, I will be dropping one historical episode a month and then on the alternating weeks. So I'll be dropping two episodes a month. So on the second episode of every month, we will be um, talking some witchy stuff, some witchcraft. And yeah. So I know this first one was kind of short, but I wanted to give you all a little rundown of kind of this big first moment where the church mentions witchcraft and how they reacted to it. And the fact that a very few years later, about 30 years later, this Pope backtracks and he says, nope, we need to start trying this. Not as heresy, but we need to start trying it as a religious crime. And so this idea, and you can, we'll talk more about some of the other shifts and things that were happening over the late 1200s, um, the late 13th century there, to see how his mind was changed and why. Uh, we'll dig into his life a little bit next month, and we will figure out what was going on in the late 1300 or the late 1200s, the late 13th century in Roman Catholic Europe? Why were they so concerned about witches or who, whether or not witches were real? How did they come to the conclusion that they weren't real? And how did they come? Why did he change his mind at the end of his life that all of a sudden the church should be persecuting charges of magic and sorcery? And the Pope that followed Alexander IV actually was one of the most cruel in his direct actions against witches. So with that being said, I'm going to stop here. And I know this one was short. Like I said, I'm sorry, but I wanted to give a little bit of background and let y'all know kind of like what's going on before we dive into the real meat of early 
modern witchcraft and the church's reaction and government reactions and laws and the lead up to some of these really intense witch trials that were taking place across Europe. Um, as we go through this, we'll talk about some of the witch trials that took place in the United States as well. We'll talk about how uh, marginalized communities such as Native Americans and Africans and enslaved peoples were targeted as witches um, because of their cultural practices, whether or not they were actually considered pagan or um, witchy. And we will discuss this in more modern context as the series goes on. And who knows where this is going to take us. I'm very excited. Uh, as I said before, I'm an early modern European historian. So my specific area of research doesn't talk a whole lot about witchcraft trials because everybody has done this, right? My area of research focuses on religion and law. So I get to take these ideas about how religion and law were intertwined and separated and recombined over the course of the reformations in Europe. And I get to take this and use this to do little case studies about which trials and which laws and all of this and bring that to you because I don't get to talk about this in my research. So I get to bring it to all of you and I'm very excited to share it. Um, if there's any topics or questions that any of you have for me, you can follow me on Instagram at witchy historian um, or on TikTok at the witchy historian. Um, you can email me at the witchy historian at gmail.com. Or you can go over to Facebook and you can search the group Moonlit Shadows. And I am a uh, admin in that group. And we do some, uh, it is a witchcraft friendly group. And so if you're interested in learning more about that side of things, feel free to join us over there. Um, keep an eye out in the future, both in Moonlit Shadows and on my other social media for some announcements about other ways to connect with me or to support me. But for now, I hope you enjoy the show and uh, I look forward to hearing from some of you and getting some feedback. And I look forward to bringing more of this to you in the future. Have a wonderful next two weeks here. Um, today's Let's see. I'm going to I'm going to actually do this thing. Um, January 19th is when this episode is going to drop. So today is planets in retrograde is Uranus and the ruler is the Jungian archetype. Natural born leader, high status and prestige, image conscious, charismatic, methodical, skillful in policy and decisions, commanding and authoritative. So that is the vibe, the energy for today. Take that forward, do what, do what you will with it, use it in positive ways, real vibes only, and uh, have a great couple of weeks and I'll see you on February 2nd. Bye. <music>